Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Endgame Part 3. So we've made it. This is the finale of the War of Independence series and it's a great show. We leave the ambushes and battles behind and in this podcast we join a delegation of Irish Republicans who travel to London to negotiate with the British government. This will see leading figures from Ireland, such as Michael Collins, lock heads with some of the most famous figures of the 20th century, Lloyd George, who had led the British Empire through the First World War, and Winston Churchill, who would lead the empire through the Second World War. The series overall has been a real journey in so many ways, given we started in the midst of Covid and hopefully we're coming out the other side now. While I am sad to leave the War of Independence behind, I'm really excited about what's coming next. There's going to be more content this year than any previous year. This is episode number 7 in what is week 9 of the year, so I'm on track to reach 50 episodes in 2022. That target is only possible because of show supporters on Patreon and Acast+. Plus. I'll never be able to thank you enough for your support. If you're not listening on Patreon or Acast Plus, you can find links in the show notes below. It's a great way to support the history you want to hear while also getting bonus content and ad-free episodes. Finally, I want to thank a few people who have been integral to the series before I begin. Jason Looney, who has worked on sound throughout the series. Sam McGrath, whose encyclopedic knowledge and research of the war has been invaluable. Aidan Crow and Therese Murray's brilliant narrations have brought the past to life and Keith Hines designed the logos for the show. Now to Endgame, part three. On Sunday, October the 9th, 1921, King George V returned to London after a royal visit to Manchester. On reaching Euston Station in the English capital, the royal party were greeted by an unusually large crowd. However, as he disembarked and left the station, in what was a rare experience for the monarch, it became apparent the crowd had not arrived to welcome him back to London. 
Indeed, journalists present comment with slight bewilderment on the scene. London may belong to the Saxon, but for the two hours last evening, that same Saxon counted very little in the Euston Road neighbourhood. The Sinn Féinor was everywhere. His flag, the green, white and orange, was everywhere. Rebel songs could be heard everywhere. The pipes scurled, the flute shrill note soared above the traffic. Everywhere, too, the little green flag with a harp could be seen. This reception, which numbered around 10,000 people, had been mobilised to welcome the Irish Republican negotiating team to London in advance of talks aimed at ending the Irish War of Independence. While the crowd was elated when the Irish delegation finally arrived on the boat train from Holyhead, some of those present were somewhat disappointed. Arthur Griffith, the official leader of the delegation, appeared with three other negotiators from Dublin, Robert Barton, Eamon Duggan and George Gavin Duffy. While they were accompanied by an entourage of advisers, the fifth and most high-profile member of the team, the real leader of the delegation, Michael Collins, was not present. He was due to arrive the following morning. However, his delay, if anything, only heightened what would become a media frenzy surrounding the enigmatic Republican leader. While the enormous reception at Euston Station that evening was inspiring and in the coming days the delegation were treated like modern-day celebrities, there's no question the Irish delegation faced major problems from the moment they had left Dublin. The fact Eamon de Valera, the President of the Irish Republic, had not travelled seemed like a strange move to many, not least his own supporters. While de Valera claimed it was a tactical ploy, Manny suspected he was fearful the talks would not end well and he did not want to be held responsible. Those who did travel, Collins, Griffith, Barton, Duggan and Duffy, were left with an unenviable task. The very fact the talks were happening in London and not Dublin or a neutral location put them at an immediate disadvantage. However, a far bigger problem was the lack of clarity around their mandate. The negotiating team had been called plenipotentiaries, meaning they had full power to act on behalf of the Republican government without consulting Dublin. However, their specific instructions from the Cabinet seemed to somewhat contradict this. Before they left Ireland, they had been told to consult with Dublin before any final decision was made. Once the talks got underway, they did not go well. It became apparent very quickly that they faced a far more experienced British negotiating team. The Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, led a team of hugely experienced politicians, including Winston Churchill, Lord Birkenhead, Austin Chamberlain and Harmer Greenwood. These wily negotiators quickly realised the inexperience of their opposing numbers. They only took Collins and Griffith seriously, and even these two were somewhat out of their depth. Collins' skill, by his own admission, was in the realm of military affairs, while Griffith, until five years earlier, had been the leader of a party on the margins of Irish politics. He had no experience of international diplomacy. The other negotiators, Robert Barton, Eamon Duggan and George Gavin Duffy, were not household names in either England or Ireland. After nearly two weeks of talks, Between the delegations, they broke into subcommittees in late October to discuss specific aspects of a potential agreement to end the war. This process continued before the British delegation presented a draft treaty on December the 1st. Given this would become hugely controversial, it's worth looking at the details of this now. Overall, 
it's fair to say that it was disappointing from an Irish perspective. Under the terms of this document, Ireland was going to be granted what was called Dominion status, similar to the status of Australia, New Zealand, Canada or South Africa. The political entity would be called the Irish Free State and it was not an independent republic. In terms of its geographical extent, under the terms of this draft treaty being presented, it did not cover the entire island. The six counties in the northeast, ruled by the Belfast Parliament, would be given the decision to opt out and remain in the United Kingdom. This would prove a mere formality, but truth be told, everyone knew Ireland had, in reality, been partitioned in the summer of 1921. Therefore, the terms of the treaty would really only apply to the 26 southern and western counties of Ireland. But aside from this, what else did it do? Well, let's start with what might be considered the major selling points. The new entity would be called the Irish Free State and most matters would be decided by a government in Dublin without the need to consult London. The British Army would withdraw its garrison from Ireland while the Royal Irish Constabulary would be disbanded. This withdrawal meant that the Free State government would set up its own police force and army. These were very important given the repressive role Crown forces had played in Irish history. However, there were some limitations to the draft treaty. Crucially, the British Navy would maintain its bases at Loxwilly, Cove and Bearhaven, while the Royal Air Force would maintain airfields near these ports. The treaty also granted the Navy the right to use Irish ports in a time of war. Now, under this draft that had been presented on December the 1st, the Free State Government would control its own finances. There were limitations here too though. The government of the Free State could not engage in any economic policy that could lead to a trade war with Britain and they had to continue to collect what were called land annuities and pay them to Britain. These were the loans given under successive land acts to Irish farmers to buy land from landlords. The Free State also had to commit to continuing to pay its share of the imperial war debt arising from World War I. It also had to commit to pay pensions of civil servants who had worked for the British administration in Ireland, which somewhat controversially included judges and members of the Royal Irish Constabulary. The Black and Tans were the only branch of the RIC exempt from this. They would be paid by the British government. In terms of its position in the world, while the Free State would leave the United Kingdom, it would remain within the British Empire. Now, this found controversial expression in the draft treaty in two proposed oaths that members of the Free State Parliament would have to take. These were an oath of allegiance to the constitution of the Free State and a second, even more controversial oath of fidelity to the reigning British monarch. When the Irish delegation were presented with this draft treaty, they challenged various points and it quickly became apparent that one of the key issues was going to be Ireland's place in the empire and the insistence of British negotiators that members of the Free State Parliament would have to swear an oath of fidelity to the British monarch. While it might seem like semantics, there were major principles at stake here and it was in fact a red line issue for the British negotiating team. Aware that independence movements, particularly in India, were watching the talks with close interest, they were adamant that Ireland would remain in the empire and swear fidelity to the crown. From their perspective, they would not allow it to become a beacon of hope to others around the world. When the Irish continued to resist on this point, the British delegates would even walk out of the talks on December the 4th. 
Meanwhile, the treaty was sent to Dublin and while the cabinet agreed to accept it, crucially, Arthur Griffith agreed he would consult with Eamon de Valera before any final draft was signed. When the talks resumed, the skilled British negotiators now adopted a high-risk strategy. On December the 5th, David Lloyd George presented the Irish delegates with a stark ultimatum. He demanded all members of the delegation sign the treaty on the table and if any refused, he would restart what he called an immediate and terrible war within 72 hours. The British, with a certain degree of truth, informed the Irish delegates that they had been constrained in the way they had fought the war up to this point, but in the event of a renewed conflict, they would cast aside public opinion and unleash their forces in Ireland. Lloyd George insisted that the Irish delegation had to come to a decision in a matter of hours and also, as I've said, demanded that all five Irish negotiators sign the treaty and if any refused, they would take the offer off the table. This placed the delegates under enormous pressure. Robert Barton, the delegate who was most opposed to the draft document, remembered, Lloyd George stated that it was now a matter of peace or war, and we must each of us make up our minds. He required that every delegate should sign the document and recommend it, or there was no agreement. He said that they as a body had hazarded their political future, and we must do likewise and take the same risks. Lloyd George then singled Barton out, telling him he would bear responsibility for the war that would follow if he refused to sign the treaty and the talks broke down. There was no question the pressure on the negotiators was immense. After nearly two months of talks, they were already jaded and now they were left with only hours to make their minds up without the possibility of consulting Dublin. Winston Churchill, one of the negotiators, remembered... The Irishman got down the ultimatum dramatically. Mr. Griffith said, I will give the answer of the Irish delegates at nine tonight. Michael Collins rose, looking as if he was going to shoot someone, preferably himself. In all my life, I have never seen so much passion and suffering in restraint. The Irish delegates left and began their deliberations. Their decision in part revolved around whether Lloyd George's threat of war was genuine or just a tactical bluff. There was no question the IRA leadership were pessimistic about their prospects if the war resumed. While they did outnumber the Crown forces in Ireland, they were chronically under-resourced in terms of arms. If Lloyd George was serious and the war resumed, there was every chance that another Irish delegation would find themselves back in London in six months' time, accepting even worse terms. Nevertheless, despite this, as they thrashed the issues out, Robert Barton still held out and refused to agree to sign the treaty. And without his signature, the British would also refuse to sign. Winston Churchill remembered waiting in number 10 Downing Street for their return. Nine o'clock came, but no Irishman. It was not long after midnight that they appeared. As before, they were superficially calm and very quiet. There was a long pause, or there seemed to be. Then Mr. Griffith said that they would accept it subject to a few points of drafting. Robert Barton, despite disagreeing with the treaty, eventually had agreed to sign. And it was at 2am on December the 6th, 1921, when the five Irish plenipotentiaries signed the document without having consulted Dublin first, as Arthur Griffith had agreed to do. As the talks finally ended, the delegates walked out of 10 Downing Street and were faced with what was an anticlimactic atmosphere. 
While the future of Ireland had been discussed inside, central London was silent outside. There was no one around save a few journalists. Michael Collins remained tight-lipped when asked for a comment. He simply said, Not a word. As the delegates absorbed what had just happened, they knew the treaty they had just signed would face, at best, a mixed reaction in Dublin. Collins, writing a letter a few hours later, revealed his views in stark terms. Will anyone be satisfied? I tell you this. Early this morning I signed my own death warrant. I thought at the time, how odd, how ridiculous, a bullet might just as well have done the job five years ago. Indeed, the British agreed with this assessment that they had gotten the better of the Irish delegates in the talks. Thomas Johnson, a leading civil servant in Downing Street, recorded in his diary, In essentials, we have given nothing that was not in the July proposals. One side in the treaty negotiations got more of what they wanted than the other. When the terms of the treaty were published, it was, as predicted, greeted with mixed reaction. There were some public celebrations in the English capital among the Irish community, but behind closed doors, Republican leaders in London were bitterly divided, and this came out into the open when the delegation left for Dublin on December the 7th. The next day, the Irish Exile, the newspaper of the Irish Self-Determination League, published a very bleak assessment of the treaty. Be not misled into rejoicing in thanksgiving without cause or reason. If under the threat of renewed and intensified warfare and as an alternative to seeing their country ravished and laid waste by fire and sword and their race exterminated, five Irishmen have been compelled to sign their names to the document published yesterday. That is not a cause for us to rejoice or, or a reason for us to offer thanksgiving. When the delegates reached Dublin, the mood was guarded. The terms of the treaty had been published across most newspapers and while it was welcomed by business and church leaders, there were no public demonstrations or celebrations like there had been in July when the truce had come into effect. This was presumably in part at least because of the complexity of the agreement. It couldn't be boiled down to a one-line statement or act like the truce had. Indeed, the muted response in the streets of Dublin surprised some. The Freeman's Journal reported, Some foreign visitors expressed their surprise at the absence of flags and the signs of popular rejoicing. Ultimately, the matter would not be decided in public opinion, but instead in the Republican Parliament, the Doyle. And there was a building consensus that when it went before this Parliament, the treaty would be passed. In the press, the debates, which would begin in mid-December, were presented as a fait accompli with only one single Irish newspaper, the Connacht man voicing opposition to the document. Most supportive coverage focused on some of the very real and practical effects of the treaty, which would improve Irish life. For thousands of Irish families, it would mean the return of loved ones who had been taken prisoner in the war, some of whom had been condemned to death. They also highlighted how the British would soon begin withdrawing troops from across the 26 counties. For many, they could see no better alternative. Supporters of the treaty were also bolstered by the fact that arguably the two most influential groups in Irish society, the Catholic Church and the trade union movement, both backed the treaty. The trade union movement did have deep reservations, but their hesitant endorsement reflected what was a general desire for peace among many across Ireland. Ultimately, however, it was, as I said, in the debates in the Republican Parliament, the Doyle, where the matter would be resolved and it convened on December the 14th, 
but it immediately became clear that Republican leaders were bitterly divided over the issue and the previous belief that the treaty would pass easily had clearly been misguided. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. In the eventuality of it being rejected, it was unclear what would happen, but many feared it would mean a renewed war. The division in the Doyle went right up to the top of the Republican movement, with the cabinet being divided over whether to endorse the treaty or not. Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith, along with the Minister for Local Government, W.T. Cosgrave, supported ratification. However, the President, Eamon de Valera, the Minister for Defence, Cahill Brewer, and the Minister for Home Affairs, Austin Stack, were staunchly opposed to it. The Minister for Economic Affairs, Robert Barton, who had been in London, did support the treaty, but only because he had committed to doing so in London. His endorsement for the document as The lesser of alternative outrages forced upon me was not exactly the enthusiasm needed by the pro-treaty side. Indeed, Barton would go on to become a vocal opponent of the treaty. The debates ran over 12 sessions, breaking up for Christmas before reconvening and culminating in the early days of the new year of 1922. In terms of the debates, it was easier for those opposed to attack the document than it was for those who supported ratification to make arguments in its favour. 
Indeed, many supporters of the treaty were lukewarm in their endorsement, making speeches that made it clear the terms of the treaty were not what they desired. For many, its unique selling point was that it was an alternative to war. There was also some very practical benefits to the treaty that its proponents could point to. As previously stated, the fact that it would lead to an evacuation of British troops from most towns in the 26 counties was a very powerful argument. It also created the chance that for the first time in history, a democratic Irish government would be able to govern part of Ireland without approval from London. Piers Beasley, the Liverpool-born Republican, in his contribution to the debates, outlined this position well. We can make our own constitution, control our own finances, have our own schools and colleges, our own courts, our own flag, our own coinage and stamps, our own police, eh? And last but not least, our own army. For what else have we been fighting for but that? Another strong argument for the treaty, returned to time and again in the debates, was the fact that it appeared to have widespread public support. Sean Milroy, who we met in episode 6 of the series, when he escaped from Lincoln Jail with Eamon de Valera, was in support, saying, Being a representative assembly, we are here endeavouring to give expression to the will of the people. If we resist the will of the people, we are false to the trust imposed upon us. The will of the people today is that this treaty shall go through, that this treaty shall be ratified. The Galway Republican, Liam Melius, provided one of the best rebuttals to this argument. Let us face facts, as we did so often during the last few years. We are not afraid of the facts. The facts are that the Irish Republic exists. People are talking today of the will of the people when the people themselves have been stampeded, as I know, because I paid a visit to my constituency. The people are being stampeded. In the people's minds, there is only one alternative to this treaty, and that is terrible, immediate war. That is not the will of the people. That is the fear of the people. Those opposed to the treaty criticised the delegates who had gone to London claiming they did not have the right to sign it and they should have consulted Dublin first. This, however, was to a degree a moot point. There was a treaty on the table before them and regardless of how it had gotten there, they needed to decide whether they would ratify it or reject it. Far more important was the issue of dominion status within the empire. Opponents of the treaty claimed that this was essentially home rule under another name. And if this was the case, the entire war had been pointless. Home rule had, after all, been offered back in 1918. However, this was not factually correct. The treaty did provide far greater autonomy than home rule. It was the oath to the crown that was returned to time and again by opponents. Now, the supporters of the treaty claimed that it was just words with no real meaning. Kevin O'Higgins, for example, tried to infer it was pretty meaningless. Your first allegiance is to the constitution of the Irish Free State and you swear fate to the King of England. Now, fate is a thing that can exist between equals. There is, if I might coin a word, mutuality, reciprocity. It is contingent and Conditional. Sean Etchingham challenged this when he said, Every child born in this country, if this thing is ratified, will be a citizen of the British Empire. Can any of you deny that? 
Others pointed to the fact that Ireland had been part of an international struggle against the British Empire, but was now accepting its place within that same empire and thereby was responsible for the repression that would follow in countries like India and Egypt, who were also aspiring for independence. This point was made by Kathleen O'Callaghan, one of the six female members of the Dáil, all of whom opposed the treaty, when she said, It does not recognise the sovereign independent status of Ireland. And, to my mind, it is a mean thing to try to patch up the wrongs of the empire. It is more than mean. It is a crime. For it leaves England's hands free to deal with places like Egypt and India. And in the name, I suppose, of our common citizenship. This argument was rebutted by the trade unionist Richard Corish when he made the salient point. I hold that under the state of present affairs, we are more responsible. Because we are sending Connacht Rangers and other Irish regiments into India and Egypt year after year to crush these peoples. One of the weaknesses in the arguments of those opposed to the treaty emerged when they were asked what their alternative was. What we might call purists, although that seems somewhat dismissive and it's not meant to be, but those who had not changed their politics since 1916, stated that at the outset of the war, the demand had been for an independent republic and anything short of this was not acceptable. Others did accept that the British were never going to accept or grant a republic. For example, Eamon de Valera had already come up with something called Document 2, which outlined something called external association. This would have been similar to many of the provisions in the treaty, but without the oaths of allegiance. However, as we have seen, the British would never have given in to something like this. It was somewhat inevitable, given the large numbers of people killed since 1916, that their memory would feature heavily. They could prove a powerful and emotive argument that could be used by both sides, while opponents of the treaty claimed it besmirched the memory of these people who had lost their lives. Everyone in the Doyle had lost friends and relatives. Sean Milroy, who supported the treaty, managed to turn the argument that they besmirched the memory of the dead on its head when he said, We are told we dishonour the memory of the dead when we speak in support of this treaty. That we have forgotten the memory of the dead. It is not because we have forgotten, but because we remember the dead who died for Ireland that we stand where we do today. It is because we want to ensure their sacrifices shall not have been in vain. Aspects of the debate became highly personalised, particularly around Michael Collins. While he had been a key negotiator and was inevitably going to face criticism because of this, it was only exacerbated by his own supporters when they cited him as a reason to support the treaty. Several speakers made such an argument like this one from Patrick McCartan. I think any thinking man has his doubts. What will many of them say? They will say, what is good enough for Mick Collins is good enough for me. Cahill Brewer, an opponent of the treaty and a man who had been at loggerheads with Collins for years, not only questioned this logic, but went on to question what Collins had actually done in the war. Can it be authoritatively stated that he never fired a shot at any enemy of Ireland. While this was probably counterproductive, Seamus Robinson, the Belfast-born Republican who had been present at Solahead Beg with Sean Tracy and Dan Breen, adopted a more tactical approach with a bitter sting in the tail, claiming the myth around Collins was perhaps exaggerated. 
If Michael Collins was all that he has been called, then I will admire him and respect his opinions. If my little mind cannot comprehend his present attitude towards the Republic and this treaty. Now from my knowledge of character and psychology, which I am conceited enough to think is not too bad, I am forced to think that the reported Michael Collins could not possibly be the same Michael Collins who was so weak as to compromise the Republic. On a more intellectual level, Mary McSweeney, the sister of Terence McSweeney, called for a more political debate, pointing out that the opponents of the treaty were using more substantive points. Not one of us said what is good enough for de Valera is good enough for us. Not one of us said what is good enough for Michael Collins is good enough for us. And there has been no belauding of personalities on our side of the house. In a moment of humour, Constance Markovich claimed she heard a rumour that Michael Collins had an affair with Princess Mary, the daughter of George V. I also heard that there is a suggestion that Princess Mary's wedding is to be broken off and that Princess Mary is to be married to Michael Collins, who will be appointed first governor of our Seerstadt Neheren. All these are mere nonsense. Presumably she said this, then retracted it in the knowledge that it would remain on the record. However, Collins attacked back with a somewhat predictable line, given Markovich's own aristocratic background. I do not come from the class that the deputy for the Dublin division comes from. I come from the plain people of Ireland. Some of the most personalised abuse was directed at the six women, all of whom, as I've said, opposed the treaty. Four were close relatives of men killed in the war and their opinions were often dismissed as bitterness over lost loved ones. Interestingly, no such argument was made to the many men in the Doyle who had also lost friends and relatives. The Limerick woman Kathleen O'Callaghan, whose husband Michael, a former mayor of Limerick, had been shot dead a few months earlier, rose to speak and tackled this head on. Oh, naturally, these women are very bitter. Well, now, I protest against that. No woman in this doll is going to give her vote merely because she is warped by a deep personal loss. The women of Ireland so far have not appeared much on the political stage. That does not mean that they have no deep convictions about Ireland's status and freedom. By the time the debate drew to a close in early January 1922, there were a few issues that had not really been addressed, which often surprises people in hindsight looking back from the 21st century. There was almost no discussion on what type of society the Free State would be. The treaty only brought it into existence, but Constance Markovich was one of the few people to bring up what kind of economy it would have. In her mind, the treaty simply continued capitalist oppression of the working class under a new flag. In what often surprises people today as well, the partition of Ireland and Northern Ireland did not really feature at all. However, in late 1921 and early 1922, there was very little impact the treaty would have in the North East. If ratified, the Unionist government in Belfast would immediately take the option to opt out of the Free State as the treaty allowed for. Ireland had in effect been partitioned by the Government of Ireland Act of 1920 and the opening of the Belfast Parliament in June 1921. The treaty did include a boundary commission to agree a new boundary between the Free State and Northern Ireland. Supporters of the treaty claimed that this would see large parts of border counties like Fermanagh ceded to the Free State. This, they argued, would make Northern Ireland unviable in the long term. 
though sceptical of this argument, were proved correct. Lloyd George had already told James Craig, the Unionist Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, that the Boundary Commission would only make minor changes. The vote on the treaty was held on January the 7th, 1922. How much the debates swayed members is very difficult to say, but the Christmas break seems to have played a decisive role. The members of the Doyle returned home to their constituencies for a short break and, while they were there, the treaty seemed to have widespread support among the population, or at least the vast majority of people had a strong desire for peace. When the votes were counted, the treaty passed narrowly, 64 to 57 votes. While the debates had been bitter, the immediate reaction saw a more convivial atmosphere than might be expected. Michael Collins appealed for unity and praised Eamon de Valera. Somewhat surprisingly, de Valera himself in the following speech reflected the immense strain they had all been under when he broke down in public, something that surprised many given his reputation as a distant, cold and unemotional person. I would like my last word here to be this. We have had a glorious record for four years. It has been four years of magnificent discipline in our nation. The world is looking at us now. The Doyle reconvened two days later, on January the 9th. At this meeting, de Valera resigned as president, but immediately sought a new mandate and was nominated for re-election by Catherine Clark and seconded by Lee Melius. However, to re-elect de Valera at this point would have been a bizarre move given his opposition to what would be a core policy of the new government of the Free State. Nevertheless, the vote was extraordinarily tight and de Valera's candidacy was only rejected by two votes, 60 to 58. On January the 10th, Arthur Griffith was put forward as a new president, but de Valera now led a walkout of those opposed to the treaty, refusing to participate in the election of a man that de Valera called the chairman of the delegation who was bound by the treaty conditions to set up a state which is to subvert the republic and who in the interim period, instead of using the office as it should be to support the republic, will of necessity have to be taken action which will lead to its destruction. When they got up to leave, the ongoing and building tensions in the room broke into the open. Michael Collins shouted, Deserters all! We will now call on the Irish people to rally with us! Deserters all! Constance Markovich, one of those to walk out, retorted, Oathbreakers and cowards! Collins shouted back, Foreigners! Americans! English! This was a reference to the fact that de Valera had been born in the US. And another TD, Erskine Childers, who we met in the last episode, was English. Personalised taunts aside, however, the treaty had passed, but it was clear a deep and bitter split was emerging in the Irish Republican movement. Meanwhile, in London, the treaty also had to be ratified in the Houses of Parliament at Westminster. Its passage there was far less contentious. It passed through the House of Commons overwhelmingly, 401 to 58. It was marginally closer in the more conservative House of Lords, but it still passed comfortably 166 votes to 47. The votes in Dublin and London officially brought the Irish War of Independence to a conclusion, but it did not mean peace. It led to two related but distinct wars. Over the following six months, it became increasingly clear opposition to the treaty was not going to end with a Doyle vote. 
While leading IRA figures such as Richard Mulcahy, the Chief of Staff, the man who succeeded him in January 1922, Ono Duffy, not to mention Michael Collins, all backed the treaty, it became increasingly clear that the IRA membership were overwhelmingly opposed to it. The government would try and stop an IRA convention taking place in March 1922, but were ultimately powerless to do anything to stop it when several brigades pushed ahead. This convened in Dublin, and it became immediately clear that most brigades across the country were opposed to the treaty. Among those present was Liam Lynch, who later articulated the position of many IRA volunteers when he said, We have declared for an Irish Republic and will not live under any other law. However, the IRA, Lynch included, were still desperate to work out a compromise. This would fail and the Irish Civil War would begin within three months, but that's a topic for a future series. Meanwhile, an increasingly separate war in Northern Ireland was beginning to take shape. While the War of Independence had started in the region in the summer of 1920, it had always had its own characteristics and this continued. In the spring of 1922, the IRA across the entire island continued to support their comrades in the northeast, and in the early months of the year, both pro- and anti-treaty IRA volunteers found common cause around an offensive in the region. This was rapidly defeated. In Belfast, the pogroms, which we discussed in the last episode, would continue into the late summer of 1922, a full nine months after the War of Independence had ended in what was becoming the Free State. The Unionist movement had effectively been successful in what was a power grab in the Northeast. Catholics and nationalists in the region became second-class citizens, and this predictably eventually led to another conflict, which began decades later in 1969. This would continue until 1998 with the signing of the Belfast Agreement. The first measure of wider public opinion in the newly established Free State took place in the summer of 1922 when a general election was held. While the nature and backdrop to the election complicated matters, 58 explicitly pro-treaty candidates were returned as against 36 explicitly anti-treaty candidates. Significantly, the Labour Party an organisation which had been established by the trade union movement in 1912 but had not contested the 1918 election, ran 18 candidates, 17 of whom were elected. They probably would have taken more seats had they run more candidates, given they received 21% of the vote. This indicated that many people were focused on social and economic issues as poverty continued in the midst of an economic recession. Within days of that election, the Irish Civil War would begin largely over the treaty, which, as I say, will be covered in a future series. This brings an end to the War of Independence series, but there's tons of great content to look forward to in the coming weeks. The next episode is on Grainne O'Hale, or Grace O'Malley, an Irish pirate queen from the 16th century. Other shows in the pipeline include a five-part series on the Bruce invasion and 19th century murder. That's a deep dive into life before the famine. So there's really great content on the way. Last but not least, I want to thank, again, all the show supporters on Patreon and Acast+. Your support means an awful lot, and this series wouldn't have happened without you. Until next time, Slong.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 